How are y'all tonight? Good. Well, I'm glad he prayed, and I hope he prayed that my parable doesn't turn out like that one. So, I think this is working okay, right? good to be back with y'all again. Um, we're going to be in uh, the book of Matthew. As y'all know, we'll be in Matthew 13. So if you want to be turning there, Matthew chapter 13. <clears throat> Hope that writing's large enough you can see it up there if you have to squint and see. But we'll be in chapter 13 and we're going to be covering a parable tonight on verses 24 through 30. Okay, this is the parable of the tares and the wheat. All right, let me open in a quick word of prayer on this. Father, we just pray you would uh, enlighten our minds and our hearts tonight as we look into your word. Give us the understanding uh, of this. Lord, every time we look at a parable, we know it's a challenge, Lord, because something looks very obvious, yet it has an underlying meaning that you want us to dig out. So help us do that tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, well. You know that we live in a world where God allows all of mankind to dwell together, coexisting, sharing the common graces of God, of His creation, right? What would you say? The air we breathe, the water we drink, right? Very common. The multitude of resources that sustain our lives. And we also enjoy many of the other blessings that are man-made because God has provided us the resources and he's also given us the skills to actually develop and build and manufacture things like the homes we live in, right? Cars, um, the medicines that we have that help to keep us well, um, varieties of, of delicious foods that we have, right? And we have all these things and we have important things like sugar, things made of sugar, right? Sweets like Oreos and milk, that's important. But everyone in the world shares these things, right? This is common to all, all men. However, when you become a Christian, it's not long before you begin to realize some changes that God has made in you. You begin to, you begin to see things differently in your heart and your mind. And you begin to respond differently to the things of the world. So while we are all really alike, is just like other humans outwardly, inwardly, you're a different person. You're a new person. You're a born-again person. And God has given you a new heart. 2 Corinthians 5-17 says that therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It says that the old has passed away and behold, the new has come. So you're now you're dead to your old self, but now you're alive in Christ, being renewed day by day 
in the inner man through God's word and by the power of the spirit of truth that lives in you. You're a true believer. Now with this change comes the realization that there are really only two distinct groups of people in the world from God's view. What the Bible calls the righteous and the unrighteous. Believers and non-believers. Dr. Wayne Mack says this. He says that you also become increasingly aware of the multitudes of people who name the name of Christ, their Lord and Savior, uh, the people who are supposedly called out of the darkness into His marvelous light from 1 Peter 2.9, and yet who love darkness rather than light, John 3.19. People who have nothing in their lives to give evidence of such a transformation. People who are slaves of their sin and whose God is their lust. And all of this directs our attention to the Holy Spirit's warning through the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 13.5. And he says this, he says to test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, he says. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? So the Scriptures are very clear to the litmus test of saving faith. Okay, so before we launch into the, the, the passage, I want to just do, touch on a little bit of background with you. Okay, as well, you know by now, um, Jesus, when He started in Matthew, he, he had fasted 40 days, right, in the wilderness. And after that, uh, Satan came and tempted Him. And he, then He left Nazareth, and then He moved out to Capernaum. Okay, and we got down to Matthew 4.17, we learned some, some important details. And it tells us that from that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And down in uh, 4, verse 23, he continued, and it says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases among the people. So, last time I was here, I was explaining about parables. And I want us to briefly review again the usage of parables, okay? So I have a question for you. What is a parable? Can anybody would like to take a stab at defining this? Ian? A uh, parable is a earthly example that has a spiritual meaning. Man, that is so good. It's almost verbatim. I've been looking at my notes. Well, it says it up on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know I put it up there. Too quick, man. Too quick. All right. Ian, you're too smart. All right, that's exactly right. Parables were Jesus' common form of teaching to the crowds. And simply said, just like Ethan did, but you, you quoted it wrong. So simply said, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. That's easy to remember. You should write that down. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Remember that. You're going to hear it several times tonight. Now we know the overall theme is what in Matthew? Jesus as King. Jesus as King, right? And Matthew is continually revealing and exalting Jesus as the long-awaited King, the Messiah. Now I mentioned my last time here that a king must have a kingdom. 
all people in Jesus' time would know very well who their king was and the extent of his rule. And this is alluded to in several places in Scripture, but most pointedly, when Jesus stood before Pilate. Do you know who Pilate was? No, uh uh. Somebody else. Somebody other pin over here. Who's Pilate? Um, I'm pretty sure he was like a Roman governor. Okay, perfect. Okay, he was. He was governor uh, for the Ro- occupied Jerusalem, occupied by Roman rule, right? And Pilate was over that area, or he was one of them over that area. Okay, now listen to this brief exchange between Pilate and Jesus from John 18, 36-37. Jesus answered and he said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. And Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I came into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And this is exactly what Jesus was communicating in the form of parables. Parables that speak in the deeper meaning of His kingdom. Now in Matthew 13 alone, Jesus reels off eight different parables of the kingdom of heaven. And tonight, we're looking at the second one. And the parable of the the wheat and the tares. And like the parable of the sower that you heard last time, Jesus will explain this in later verses to the disciples. So, let's take a look at the passage. If you got that there again, Matthew 13, 24 through 30. It says here, Jesus presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the, when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Our theme for this passage tonight is this. Believers and unbelievers coexist. But unbelievers will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Believers and unbelievers coexist, but unbelievers will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, I've broken this passage down into three parts. We're going to call them stages, okay? Three stages. Now, these stages are categorically of the agricultural description and that, that Jesus uses in, this, in His parable. And we will be looking at the whole parable from its, what I said earlier, the obvious application to its deeper meaning, which Jesus is speaking of. <clears throat> so ag- agriculturally speaking, we're considering the following stages. The planting and germination, and then it becomes visible and identifiable, and then time and harvest. <clears throat> 
So let's begin at the first stage. Planting and germination. Verse 24 through 25. Jesus presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. So again, as it says, Jesus presented another parable to them. You know, this parable, as I said, follows immediately after the parable of the sower. And it's important to note that all the parables surrounding the kingdom of heaven essentially carry critical aspects regarding the kingdom of heaven. And the illustrations used do not necessarily carry the same meaning, though there may be similar elements. For example, the seed of the parable of the sower does not represent the same meaning for the seed used in the parable of the wheat and the tares. That, this is why we must, be, we must carefully exegete the Scriptures, which means that we must come to understand the meaning of the words of the passage that we might rightly understand and so we can rightly apply the meaning in how we teach and live. So Jesus, it says, presents another parable. And it says that He presented it to them. To them is the crowds. The crowds, again, here are in view. Not only the crowds, but again, the Pharisees are still hanging around. And we know that the disciples because, are there because we know later that they actually asked Him to explain this parable later in this chapter. So verse 24, again, continuing, and it says, saying that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. So the word compared is a tip-off, right? That, that would tell you a parable's coming. Okay? And it says the kingdom of heaven. Now you've now heard this phrase several times now in the, in the, on the whole Gospel of Matthew. It's a big theme. The kingdom would indicate a territory or a dominion subject to a king. And it says, of heaven. The Greek word is oranos. And this first means and foremost means the idea of elevation. It's a higher place beyond here, beyond death and the grave, where life exists eternally, forever, where God dwells, a place forever with God. The Blue Letter Bible commentary says this about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus employed the phrase the kingdom of heaven to indicate that perfect order of things for which he was about to establish in which all those of every nation which should believe in him were to be gathered together into one society dedicated and intimately united to God and made partakers of eternal salvation. And he says that the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. So again, Jesus presents an earthly comparison of a man that sowed good seed in his field. Now what might we call a type of what might we call the type of man that sows seed? We'll call a farmer, right? So obvious, right? You would go, duh, it's obvious. But this is the point. What seems obvious? Yes, probably one of the most common ways of life to the, that this crowd would easily understand and relate to. And he says that he sowed good seed. Now literally, this means that he literally scattered the seed down the rows that had been plowed to receive the seed. 
And it also says that he sowed good seed. Not just any seed, but good seed. Good in that its nature and its characteristics will grow into what it's intended to be. The seed is the grain which contains within itself the germ to gr- that will produce f- the future plants. It's the reproductive part, um, the reproductive part that germinates to grow into a plant. Germination is that beginning process where the seed begins to grow under the ground. And it says that this man sowed good seed in his field as it continues. His field here is a possessive pronoun showing ownership because he has possession. So it's showing ownership of this field and he's cultivated this field for his own pleasure to plant the stuff that he wants to grow and the things that he loves. Well, at the end of a long, hard day's work in the field, a man's sleep will be pretty good, right? Verse 25 says, But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat, and they went away. So nighttime would be the most opportune time for someone to attempt to destroy all that hard work and to, to, in an effort to, to render this crops useless, or at least to limit the maximum potential of the production. In verse 25, it indicates that it's his enemy. In context to the times of Jesus, this would not be unusual, particularly by enemies of another clan or another city. It's said that there was an actual Roman law prohibiting such acts. So it's evidently a real possibility. And this enemy was no stranger. The Greek meaning makes it clear that it is a certain, well-known adversary, one that is hostile to this man who comes and he sows tares among the wheat. So here we now have another form of a plant being sown side by side among the good seed, as we know now, which has been introduced to us as wheat. But what is a tear? A tear is a, what's called a darnel, a D-A-R-N-E-L. It is a type of a rye grass. Many refer to it as a weed. But this is important. It, is closely, it closely resembles wheat, except the grains are black. It is commonly referred to as a false grain. Now we've looked at the earthly story. Now let's consider the heavenly meaning thus far. After all, Jesus began this story with the full intention that we understand the comparison he's making in this illustration. So Jesus intends that it be known that he is the man who sows the good seed in his field. Psalm 24.1 says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So his field is the earth in this parable. And he is scattering his good seed all over the earth. And his seed is good, as mentioned before, because the nature, as I said, and the characteristics of this seed will grow to what it is intended to be. So when Christ's gospel goes forth, it produces good men. And these good seeds are referred to as the sons of the kingdom. They are the spiritual children of God, which is indicated later in verse 38. So the good seeds represent people who have heard the gospel message, they've believed, and they are walking in repentance. 
And these good seeds full now of the gospel and the Holy Spirit, God scatters over the whole face of the earth. John MacArthur's commentary wraps this up very nicely. He says that the Lord plants people in the world as His witnesses to grow and become fruitful plants of righteousness. The sons of the kingdom are faithful to the king uh, and reflect his will and his standards before a wicked and corrupt, unbelieving world. Christians are not left in the world by accident, but are placed there on divine assignment uh, from their Lord. And Jesus makes it clear that he sows the good seed, but he also reveals that, they, that he has an adversary out to destroy his crops. Satan is his ancient old enemy, well known as we mentioned. And Satan here, he comes again at night, right? The prince of darkness. That one who prowls around at night seeking who he may destroy. Yet in the day, he masquerades as an angel of light. And he sows tares. He sows this false grain among the wheat. Sons of the evil one among the sons of the kingdom. A mingling of good and evil. Those that desire the pleasures of this world and those that have been born again now with new desires for the holy things of God. So the immediate issue right before us then is about identification. And this plays out in the preceding verses, in verses 26 through 28, which we're calling the second stage. Visible and identifiable. But when the wheat sprouted, as it says in verse 26, but when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, the tares became evident also. Evident here is the simultaneous growth of the wheat and the tares mingled together. And now from germination, they are beginning to sprout and grow, becoming more and more visible. <clears throat> now the word when represents a period of time. It's a season. What, because crops, they don't grow in a day, right? But over a period of time. So what we know, what we know is that the, in the early growth period of the tares and the wheat, they are near impossible to tell apart, as you can see in the picture. Their resemblance is practically identical until the grain heads become evident. Evident meaning when they are brought under the light of truth. Then they are fully visible and identifiable. The words bore grain reflects on the final nature and characteristics of the original seed that was planted. Now this is the same kind of result that Jesus spoke about in the parable in Matthew 7, 15-20. You may recall this, uh, talking about the good and the bad trees. Verse 20, he says, By their fruits you will know them. So see, wheat is wheat because it bears grain. And the tares are tares because they bear the black grains, evidencing that they are indeed tares and not wheat. So we see again clearly the earthly story. Let's look again at the heavenly meaning. In the same way that the wheat and the tares are simultaneously growing side by side until they are identifiable by their grain, they bear as they bear this, it is also true 
and how believers and unbelievers are eventually known. Whether they are sons of the kingdom or sons of the evil one. And over time, it becomes more and more clear. This point is further developed in verses 27 through 28. We're going to go to 27 now. It says, The slaves of the landowner came and they said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? Well, these slaves belong to this landowner. The, the Greek word for slaves is doulos. Doulos is a meaning that means that they have given themselves up for another's will. So they, they're devoted to service to do this man's will, carry out his plans. And these slaves, they notice something quite unusual and they rush to, the, to report this to their master. And they ask a question, actually, which no one would actually deny is true because no one would waste their land to, to sow weeds, right? So the question is from great surprise, which is indicated actually by the follow-up question. So we're going to look at this follow-up question. How then does it have tares? Well, we got to look at this. It would, be, it would not be unusual to have a few weeds in the wheat, right? Just like you probably see a small number of weeds in your home, like your garden or in your flower beds, right? But they've not actually overtaken those, those beds. But in this case, it's clearly evident that there's foul play. These weeds, these tares have been clearly planted so, that, so much that they are as numerous as the wheat, if not more. <clears throat> and this clearly gives us a picture of our world even today. Scattered over the world are unbelievers and believers. And I don't think it would be a stretch to say uh, even more numerous than believers. And we could prove that biblically, but that would be a rabbit trail. We don't have time to chase right now. But their question is how? How could this happen? And the landowner declares the only possible reason in verse 28. He says here, and he said to them, an enemy has done this. So what once was unknown in the beginning of the narration in verse 25 is now made known from the mind of the landowner. He knows a certain hostile enemy of his has done this treacherous act, trying his best to destroy the good seed and any hope of the future harvest. We know that Jesus is the landowner, which made, made it clear in verse 25. And here... Jesus is revealing his ancient enemy from the beginning, Satan. It was Satan in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. You may recall what we call the fall in Genesis 3. So listen to this account from Genesis 3 verse 1 and how Satan is described by God. He said, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. <clears throat> and down in verse 13, after the woman had fallen into the temptation, the woman said, the serpent deceived me. And in verse 15, we're given the clear understanding when God proceeds to put a curse on the serpent. So Jesus speaking to Satan, and I'm looking at verses 14 and 15 in Genesis 3. You don't have to turn there. I'll read this. But it says, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you shall go and you shall 
eat dust all the days of your life. And in verse 15, he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Did you catch that? Between your seed and her seed. There it is. Two seeds here in view. Now let's look at the nature of the two seeds briefly. Listen to what John 8.44 says about Satan's seed. And this is Jesus rebuking the Pharisees. He says, You are of your father the devil, and the, the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie... He speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. Satan's deception in the garden was with the purpose to kill Eve through her sin. Now listen to the other characterization of Satan. Acts 13.10 says Paul rebuking a sorcerer in the city of Cyprus and he's saying, Oh, full of deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? You see, Satan will never stop perverting and subverting the good and straight ways of the Lord because that is who he is. Now let's contrast that to her seed. Spoken of clearly in Galatians 4, 4-5, through it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman and born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Matthew one twenty one says that and she will says and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And in first John three five, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in Him, there is no sin. So we have one seed that gives death. And we have one seed that gives life. R.C. Sproul gives this clear summary regarding the results of the fall in Genesis 3. He said that humanity is now divided into two communities. The redeemed who love God and the reprobate who love self. A reprobate is one that is morally corrupt. The fruit of his life is always ending in corruption. He is going to be rejected by God and counted worthless, condemned. But for the redeemed, Romans 8.1 says that there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So, from the fall in Genesis 3, between, as he said, this phrase, between your seed and her seed, God himself prophesies regarding the hostility that he will continue to allow to perpetuate until the last days when Satan is finally bound and destroyed. Now, this is further revealed, and we're going to look at the, at the slave's response to the landowner's uh, of the revelation of his enemy. As we continue in verse 28, said that the slaves said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? 
This is a deliberate, subjunctive question. They are totally subject to him is where the word subjunctive comes to. And they're asking, uh, asking, is there anything that we can do? We'll do whatever you wish is their response. Just give the word. So not only are they poised to act, but the end of their question shows, this is a long word, it shows a presumptive knowledge of what they know about their landowner, about their master. Presumptive knowledge, what I mean is that they know that he will not tolerate weeds in his field. So they have followed him for some time and therefore they are very familiar with his ways. Let me ask you a question. What is the most important truth that we know about God's nature that causes us to fear and love Him? Let me say that again. What is the most important truth that we know about God's nature that causes us to fear and love Him? I even let you guys back there. Anybody, anybody want to take a stab? His justice. Good. Uh, sovereign. sovereign. His forgiveness. His forgiveness, okay. Those are all connected to the Word. What I'm looking for is holy. He is holy. And because He is holy, there will be nothing near... There will be, there will be nothing near Him that is not holy or that has not been made holy by the perfect life and sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one telling the parable, and you need to remember this. Listen to some of the verses on God's holiness. Exodus 15.11 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders, Habakkuk 1.13 says, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. And Leviticus 19.2 says, this was Moses speaking uh, with the Israelites, speaking to the, all the congregation of the children of Israel and said to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am, am holy. And finally, in 2 Samuel 22.31, he said, As for God... His way is perfect, and the word of the Lord is proven. He is holy. And because He is holy, the slaves, these angels that are in view here, are standing by with their sickle in their hands, ready to cut down these weeds that came from the bad seed. But, to their surprise, they hear a new response from their master. Verse 29 says, But he said, No, for while we, you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. So he says, But he said, This is indicating a change of course from, the presume, from what they presume that he would tell them to do. And he replies, No. As in, absolutely not. Absolutely not, because he recognizes in his infinite wisdom of farming that their slashing of the weeds and pulling and gathering out these tares would most assuredly risk the loss of some of the wheat. And you can determine 
from this response that he intends not to lose any of his wheat. You see, God is infinite in His infinite knowledge and wisdom as Creator of everything knows agriculture. The science, the art, the practice of cultivating the soil, producing crops, raising livestock. He created it all. And because He is Creator, and in this parable the landowner, He is the master gardener. He commands His servants not to touch the wheat because he, you may uproot the wheat with them. And in this mingling of the tares and the wheat, the unseen issue is still beneath the surface. You see, both the plants grow these root systems and they're getting tangled up. So when you go to pull that tear out, he says you could pull some of the wheat with it, thus destroying a portion of the wheat. God's love and care for His people is the same. He has said, which is His promise, He will not lose even one of us. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And take heart. John 10, 27-30, listen to Jesus' words. My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of My hand. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of My Father's hand. I and My Father are one. So the landowner, in verse 30, instead begins to lay out his wise plan to preserve his wheat and remove and destroy the tares, which is the last stage. Stage 3, the time and harvest. Verse 30 says, Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn. Burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. So he says, allow both to grow. Now in the Greek meaning here is to permit. Permit it. Do not hinder it. The landowner knows best that each plant must mature in order to cleanly separate out the tares from the wheat. And so he is patient to give time because the plants do not grow at the same pace. Some will mature earlier than others. So he doesn't want to harvest the plants until he decides that all are ripe for harvest. The key in this verse is time. The landowner says, allow until. It's a limited time until the landowner tells his workers, time is up. And the identity of the tares and the wheat is clearly visible, clearly identifiable by the head of grain produced, which is the fruit of their lives. You know, this is of incredible importance if the landowner wants to harvest every grain of wheat. Similarly, Jesus here is referring to a point 
of end time coming when all people will be proved as to what they really are. As 2 Peter 3.9 that we just read clearly is referring to the time of the harvest, which is the time of, the, of reaping what was sown. And it's being delayed for a limited time uh, that both the tear and the wheat can be clearly identified. Now, Christians often ask the question, well, why does God keep waiting? Why, why doesn't He just come and rid the earth of the evil ones and we go on to heaven? He knows who's going and who's not, right? This is a common thought, common question. But you have to remember, this is a period of grace. And it is here that the illustration of the agriculture and the things of God end. These plants, the tares and the wheat, are bound, they're, they're bound to be according to the seed that they are. Wheat seeds grow into wheat, and tares are from the tare seed. However, God's power is able to take a human whose life is characterized like a tear and transform his life into the new character of wheat. Transform him, him from the seed that will produce death to the seed that has life. And this change is possible only by the power of the Gospel. Now this truly is a period of grace that we are living in. Are you living as a tear? Or wheat? Do you know for sure if you are of the righteous or the unrighteous? Are you a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you a false believer? Believing but not really living out the true faith. What you believe. Never really coming to repentance. Think upon that. If not, you're not really Or if you're not really sure... God continues to graciously extend time for you right now to decide if you will trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. You are a tear. A lost soul bound by Satan who can do no good. And any good you do will not be enough for you to save your soul in the time that's coming when God will say time is up. You're in need of the forgiveness of your sins that you can be transformed into wheat, into good seed, saved by grace. You can be changed and made new by putting your faith in Jesus Christ and turning to Him in repentance. This is what we call the power of the cross. Jesus died on that cross to bear your and my sins that we might have forgiveness of our sins and the promise of eternal life. And you can have that tonight. I don't know where any of you are, but I extend this to you. 1 John 1 9 says, if we confess our sins, he, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all righteousness. Put your faith in Christ alone and turn your life around by, by walking in repentance. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And it says, for it is with your heart 
that you believe and are justified as with your mouth that you confess and are saved. If this is in your heart, please take courage. Talk to your parents if your parents are believers or talk to one of your leaders here. This is a period of grace. And also, it is a warning that we should heed if we think we are truly Christians. 1 Corinthians 10.12 warns, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Remember earlier I mentioned 2 Corinthians 13.5 and it warned us that we, we must test ourselves to know if we're in the faith. Examine yourself lest you be disqualified. You see, many of these Corinthians were living double lives. One foot in sin, one foot in the church. And this exists still today and always has. And we're not to be surprised by this. But we are to be aware that there are many people in churches, even could be in ours, that are false believers. Like the tear we've covered tonight. They resemble a believer in how they talk and live in Christian surroundings, but their lives, their lives lack the fruit that we would expect to see if they are what they claim to be. What are you struggling with right now? What is, it, what is the sin that is dogging you? Maybe it's your thought life. Maybe it's an, the idolatry of some kind of comfort. Maybe it's selfishness, lying. Maybe it's a rebellious attitude. Maybe disobeying parents, dishonoring parents. Maybe it's envy, jealousy of someone. You know, if you're knowingly struggling in a sin pattern, testing your faith is a must. And I want to help you do that tonight. Please consider with me the following, the following verses to help you look at yourself rightly. And I would strongly encourage you to please don't, don't lie or justify your sinful thoughts or your actions. God says that your sins will find you out. Nothing is hidden from His eyes. 1 John 2, 3-4 says, Now by this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. 1 John 3, 9-10 says, Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. In this, he says, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Titus 1.16 says that they profess to know God, but in works they deny Him being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. And the last one I'll share with you is Romans 8, 13-14. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. 
You know, these verses are most helpful for you to examine yourself, to, to see if you're in the faith. And I encourage you to spend some time with these verses. I have left a stack of papers back there wherever we got them. Um, it's a worksheet that you can take with you and in your own time walk through there, working through those verses and thinking through them. Now, you may be thinking, uh, well, why should God allow someone to come to church posing as a believer? And why is testing our own faith necessary? Have you ever thought about that? Well, these are good questions and ones that the Bible has provided a clear answer. Listen to uh, this explanation from 1 John 2.19. He says that they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be able, that they might be manifest that none of them were of us. So this phrase that they might be manifest is necessary to help us grow to discern those in our midst that are not believers at all, maybe even posing as imposters. You know, it's important to realize that visible membership in the church does not guarantee salvation. 1 John 2.26 says that these things I have written to you concerning those who try to deceive you. So remember I mentioned earlier that an enemy had sowed tares among the wheat. So let's, uh, the landowner stated that an, that an enemy had done this. So let's be clear. Matthew 16.18, Jesus said, speaking of his gospel message, it starts and he says, and on this rock, now, the rock represents the message, the gospel. And he says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So though Satan may attempt in many ways to destroy and minimize the growth of Christ's church, he will not prevail. You know, this sheds insight on the reason why Satan would sow tares among the wheat. Jesus is explaining through this parable the spiritual warfare that is being waged by Satan against Christ and against His people, His church. So this brings us to the last part of verse 30 and how Christ explains how it all ends. And when the time is up, then comes the harvest. He says, continuing, And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up but gather the wheat into my barn. The illustration here is clearly understandable from the agricultural perspective. You know, the reapers are those workers that will cut down everything in the field, both the tares and the wheat. And the only difference is in the bundling apart from the wheat. And this is very specific instruction followed with the location that, where they're going to be put after they are gathered up. Now, heavenly speaking, the harvest is the end of the world. It is the day of judgment has come when the angels, the reapers, will first gather all the unbelievers apart from the believers to receive their just penalty and reward respectively. Though in this world they were allowed to coexist, as we talked about earlier, the time has come for the harvest. The tares will no longer be among the wheat. No sinners left among the saints. When it was difficult previously to distinguish between the tares and the wheat, 
it will now be totally clear as to who the unbelievers and the believers are, the wicked and the righteous. And it says that of the tares, bind them in bundles to burn them up. You know, this is the final eternal condemnation for all the wicked, unbelieving souls where they will be cast forever into the lake of fire. Revelation 20.15 says, And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, it doesn't take much imagination here of what that was tended for the final use into the fire. Now, it's essentially they were weeds and they had no value left to the landowner. But he says to gather the wheat into my barn. The true believers are the wheat. They are the good and valuable grain which will be gathered into the barn, literally into the storehouse or the granary, symbolizing the collection of the saints into God's eternal home in heaven, forever enjoying God's glory and presence. You know, I know this is long, but what tremendous imagery, as you can imagine, going on here that Jesus uses for us, on one hand, to understand and be warned, but on the other hand, to place our hope and trust. So I want to close here tonight. This, I want to close with a note here from Matthew Henry's commentary. And I'd like to let this be our prayer tonight as we close. Um, this is referenced out of Psalm 26, uh, 9 and 1 Samuel 25, 29. So if you would, I'd ask you just go ahead and bow your head and I will finish up reading this through and praying. Sinners of the same sort will be bundled together in that great day. A bundle of atheists, a bundle of those who indulge in all forms of sensual pleasures, a bundle of persecutors, and a great bundle of hypocrites. Those who have been associates in sin will be so in shame and sorrow. Let us pray as David, Lord, gather not my soul with sinners, but let it be bound in the bundle of life with the Lord our God. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, Preston. It's a lot, of, a lot to think about there. You know, one of the keys to the Christian life